Greetings, mortals, and welcome to a hair-raising, blood-curdling, frighteningly factual production of Fax Machine Live, or as I prefer to call it, Fax Machine Undead. <laughs> now, my corporeal form is named Emily Costa, and I'm seated here with my co-ghosts, Rob Frawley. Hello. And, yes, yes. Applause it up. Uh, and Noah Guyberson. Howdy. And our specially conjured guest and formidable producer of WNYC's Science Friday, Diana Montano. In what is ostensibly a creepy basement, but a very nice creepy basement, <laughs> called Caveat in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So we are gathered here tonight, a mere few eves before that of All Hallows, to tell terrifying tales of the science behind the seance, the nature behind the supernatural, and the surprisingly normal behind the paranormal, proving once and for all that fact is indeed stranger, and I dare say, spookier than fiction. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. So I must say that we actually first met Diana uh, at Science Friday's Science Trivia, which we won, <laughs> NBD. Oh, um, but I do have to ask, there's a what? more important superlative than that, at least in my mind. Were we the most annoying team there, too? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> you were the loudest. <laughs> Which which is really good feedback. I remember there was one question where I sort of misworded what I was saying during part of the answers, um, and the whole audience revolted against me. <laughs> and I remember, I think, seeing your face going, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, no, sweet children. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but then you came up afterwards and were very kind and definitely were well suited for the task at hand. So. <laughs> so I just remember Diana saying, and the answer to number seven is sand dunes. And Noah was like, dunes! <laughs> we did it! Okay, so this was a round where every single question was just audio from somewhere on the planet. We had no idea what it was. I think the max any team got was two out of ten, which was yeah. us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and basically I read this article like a million years before that sound, sand dunes made a noise that was kind of like and, and I was like guys one of these is going to be fucking dunes right? <laughs> so I think we guessed like a whale so maybe some ice for one of them and then for the eight other questions we just put sand dunes <laughs> and one out of eight's not bad no it is not and it was enough more importantly uh, <laughs> alright so tonight We'll perform our ritual of exchanging three facts with accompanying discussion, jokes, and hexes. And once our tales have run their corpse, oh, <laughs> I mean course, <laughs> we'll conclude with a pub-style trivia quiz. So good. Aw, thank you. Buckle in. <laughs> conclude with a pub-style trivia quiz that is loosely inspired by the theme and most assuredly haunted. So without further ado, yeah, we have another hour of this. They'll get better. Uh, Rob, please begin your cursed incantation. Absolutely. So this week I learned that the future of the city might be made out of bones. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. 
Okay. Um, so, yes, I'm talking about the barren hellscape that will be Earth in just a few years. Um, <laughs> but uh, why, why are bones scary? So, first, on a biological point of view, bones are actually where life begins in a way. Um, all of our cells start in kind of stem cell form in bone marrow in the center of our bones. And if you think of a skeleton, it is a bone without any of the living parts, like just eviscerated out of it. And so it is quite the deadest thing that might be on the earth. Check. <laughs> and so uh, why is this something that we're interested in for, um, for engineering or for building? And so this is actually a sustainability concept, the idea that uh, you could use bones to make better, stronger buildings that will last longer, that will biodegrade better, um, create less waste, and use less energy. And that's why they might be appropriate from an ecological point of view. First, I want to talk about how bones are made. Uh, I need to just kind of tell everyone I'm a bone geek. Um, bones are a living tissue, and so they're the subject of biology. It's actually what I studied for my degree, um, and I did an entire defense about growing bones in a plate. Uh, which was very interesting, and a few people attended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so they are, um, bones are more than just the mineral that makes them up. Bones are actually kind of very specifically um, the interarrangement of calcium and phosphate and the proteins and collagen that make them, make them so. And so you can take those same ingredients and arrange them differently, and you can get seashells, or you can get deer antlers, um, or you can get just rocks. Um, <laughs> for which I hold rocks. the highest. <laughs> Got enough rocks. <laughs> I hold the highest disdain for rocks. Um, but so the way that you arrange them is actually very important. And I know this because uh, one of my thesis advisors used to look at the plates of mineral I grew and be like, you don't know that's bone. <laughs> and he would send me back to my desk all disappointed. Um, and so bone is tough. Bone is strong. Bone is viscoelastic. It behaves like a fluid which is a really interesting property that it compresses and releases slowly. And all of this is because of things like the microstructure of bone. So here you can see there's CT images and some uh, MRIs of bone. Uh, my favorite bones in the spine up there. I like spines a lot. Um, everyone has a favorite bone, I, but. Um, <laughs> okay, but the reason that bones in general are really cool is because they have this outside cortex that's very, very strong that can bear a lot of weight, and they have this inside trabecular structure or spongy structure um, that is a lot of little fibers, a lot of very hard mineralized fibers. And so when you load bone, some of these can break, but that doesn't fracture the whole bone. It, it can microfracture, and because there are cells inside, bone can repair. Um, and that's why it's such an incredible tissue. Um, and actually, this is a great time um, to play a little game that I call I got a bone to pick. I got a bone to pick. Um, the words of uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Kendrick Lamar. So what I want to do is describe to you guys on stage first, and then we can throw it to the audience. I want to describe a bone based on its material properties, and then you pick which of your 206 bones I'm describing. Sound fair? Good thing I studied. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can you pick the bone in the human body that has a compressive strength per square inch four times that of concrete? I'm get, I, is it a leg bone? Thinking and it's it, in the heel. This is 20 oh, questions? That, in your foot. I would yeah. think it would be like the femur because the other part, it's mm. like your foot has like, like lig ligaments in it that are taking some force and then your, leg, your lower leg has two bones in it uh, that are like holding everything. So, but mm. the femur's got like That's one correct. big one, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Audience, do you have any counter guesses? Anything else? Anyone want to yell out your favorite bone? Skull, Skull Calvaria, interesting guess. Okay. 
<laughs> Which one? Ear. Oh, the three little ones in your ear. The hammer, the anvil. Okay, now I'm just showing off. Uh, <laughs> no, it is neither of those. It's actually the femur. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So the, the femur per square inch can bear 19,000 pounds of pressure without, without being crushed, without deforming. Wait, That's do you know other bones? Whoa. What about this one? It's a... No. Wait. The little finger bone? Oh, the one in the top or yeah, the middle? Yeah, how much uh, pressure can that take then? So your carpals can take, uh, I don't know, less. Less? <laughs> <laughs> Rob, you have a PhD in bone biology. Yeah, yes. I thought you knew all the things about bones. <laughs> but I can tell you it takes like between five and 10,000 newtons to break a femur. Wow. Um, applied appropriately. And so, and it's because, <laughs> I mean. Strategically. Yeah, must be done right. Um, but so thank you all. This has been an exciting round of my favorite new game. I got, I got a bone, a bone to pick. pick. <laughs> All right. Okay, so what does this have to do with architecture? Because we really haven't done anything yet. Uh, <laughs> um, so one idea is make modern materials more like bone. And so this is a, a slice of bone. You're looking at the cortical structure where you can actually see there are kind of hollowed out areas and then bone is built uh, circumferentially around it. And so there's a hollow middle and like strength in the circular structure and these circles kind of run into one another. And so they're kind of random actually. So having regularized patterns creates stress points and those stress points can become regularized and then you create weak and so by having a more randomized structure, it, it, it creates a different type of strength, uh, kind of a strength from any kind of catastrophic failure. Um, so this is pretty cool. And so this was written up in an article in 2017 that bones don't crack under pressure. What journal was that in? Um, let's see. Oh, this one, believe it or not, this was in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science or... PNAS. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for that. Um, our favorite journal. <laughs> um, in fact, though, lots of designers are thinking about things like this. How do you do use biomimicry? How do you take living systems and then figure out how to engineer something that works in the same way? So this is a great example. And using uh, parametric modeling, you can actually get a lot of this microstructure. The only problem is it is expensive. It's expensive to make things at a micro scale like this. It's hard to scale up. Um, so Marcus Bueller, the head of MIT's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering and a lead author on the study, describes the findings as a way to borrow from nature uh, while pursuing the future. Very, <laughs> very interesting. Uh, another idea is literally just use bones, either reuse bones or synthesize new bones or do something with those bones. Um, but I'm using mine. <laughs> yeah. We'll and wait for yours. <laughs> yeah. You, you can sign up going, you patiently. Have to wait, you don't want it to wait too long the way I'm going. <laughs> yes. Now if you donate oh. your body to science, it could become a building. That'd be cool. <laughs> cool? Like when, when you have those donor plaques that like, this building was brought to you by... <laughs> Literally. <laughs> this building was built with... Yeah, contains. Um, so before we talk about this in a futuristic sense, you should know that this, this already happens. Buildings get made out of bones. And so there are bone chapels and kind of bone temples around the world, um, like this beautiful room. Um, and so I'll jump right in here. This is the Czerma Chapel, Czerma uh, Skull Chapel in Poland. Uh, this unique temple adorns 3,000 skulls that and, and countless shin bones, actually. They bothered, to, they bothered <laughs> to count 3,000 skulls, and they were like, and a whole fuck ton of shin bones. <laughs> uh, the shin bones connected to the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but this was the work of um, uh, a, a priest, Father Vaclav Tomasek, um, who gathered them over the course of 40 years, from the 1770s to 1804. Oh, um, gathered them. <laughs> yeah. What does that mean? He <laughs> One them. by one. What are you saying? <laughs> So he was not, to my knowledge, at least the serial killer. Um, but there were there were many wars in Europe, I'm told, and so like <laughs> he just found some bones after a battle uh, in nearby Poland. Just walking around. Yeah. Yeah. This looks like a nice one. I'm gonna call you Yorick. Ah, another one. And you. And you. <laughs> um, but another one uh, that I'll draw attention to is the Capela dos Ossos in Portugal. Mm, this yeah, one really leaned in, uh, and so not only. Not only, the the previous one was adorned with bones. This one is actually literally constructed with bones, as in they replaced the bricks with bones. Um, And so they made the columns out of, those are femurs mostly, some humeri, uh, maybe a very large radius from a very large man, um, to make like the structural parts um, where the the beams would be. And then all the rest of the walls were just mortar and skulls, um, which is uh, inspired, some would say. Yeah. Mortar and skulls sounds like a death metal band. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is. Yeah, uh, there are actually a lot of these in Portugal, so that is the, the land of my heritage, in case anyone was wondering how I got to be this way. Um, <laughs> but I will say that I actually, when I was visiting there a few years ago, actually encountered one of these, very much to my surprise. Um, and seeing your fact, I pulled up the inscription that is written above the entryway to this one. So this was in Faru, which is a, like a city along the southern coast. Um, and I just remember seeing this inscription and thinking that it was a little gratuitous and redundant, but we'll see if you guys agree. So it reads, Para aqui considerar que este estado has de chegar, which means stop here and consider that one day you will arrive at this state too, which like, it is a literal building built from skulls. I, I think we get the memento mori message. But thanks anyways. If that Polish priest has anything to say about it, you (laughs) certainly will. (laughs) Very true. But yeah, like, so this this was one use for bones. This was like a very kind of novel way to take bones and then like get a second life out of them, I guess. There are like tons of other ways that people have used bones other than just building. And my favorite one is that the Victorians used to make tie clips out of badger bones. Does anyone want to guess which badger bone they used? (laughs) Was Was it the jaw? Just... (laughs) <laughs> it was the badger penis bone. <laughs> so what's interesting is actually that uh, the badger has a penis bone. In fact, most a- mammals, placental mammals at least, have penis bones. And it's humans who have the misfortune not to have one. Um, <laughs> humans don't. Gorillas and chimps do. Uh, elephants don't and rabbits don't. And there are like a couple more uh, exceptions there, but most mammals do. Um, and I read somewhere that it has evolved nine times independently and has been lost in ten separate lineages. <laughs> so there's a, there basically biology can't figure out whether mammals should have penis bones or not. Um, and there's this big argument in mammal lineages. Um, but some other great uses uh, for bacula, which is the name for penis bones. Um, Indigenous Alaskans used the bacula of sea lions, whales, and polar bears uh, to make handles for tools, which is pretty fucking motivated. <laughs> like, <laughs> you gotta kill a polar bear or a whale and a sea lion to get a gigantic penis bone for your axe or whatever, or, you know, pole vaulting thing. Um, but it's also another really interesting thing about bacula is that um, it's actually been suggested that the rib in the biblical Adam and Eve story was mistranslated and that the, the rib supposedly Adam, or God, whatever, took out of Adam <laughs> to make Eve was actually some sort of, uh, sort of like retcon in, you know, uh, Um, mythology to explain why humans didn't have a bacula compared to all the other animals they would have been familiar with which did. 
The only problem with that is that the the same sort of the the biological derivative, uh, I should say, like the developmental starting point for the the bacula is the same bone in other animals as forms the clitoral bone, and human females don't have a clitoral bone either. So that that story makes no sense, and it's probably the only time in the Bible that you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, one anyway. Bunch of Catholics what? over here. <laughs> Living it up on this Team atheism. Yeah. <laughs> one, one last note on bacula. Um, some early cultures actually used them as toothpicks. Um, yeah. Don't say it. Which is, please, don't please. Say it. means no, that say they're, it. they're the first dick pics. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But no, wait, there's more. <laughs> All right, so the city of the future, bear with me. So there is a precedent for using bones to build cities. Um, and so instead of trying to create steel that's like bones or making cement that's more bone-like, you can actually design bones and grow them. And so that's what Dr. Michelle Oyen, uh, formerly of Cambridge Department of Engineering, wanted to do. She says engineers tend to throw energy at problems, whereas nature throws information at problems. They fundamentally do different things. Um, so that's a good thought. I like that thought. Um, so what she did, um, and I love Michelle Oyen. Um, so in her lab, they have a team that have been making samples of artificial eggshell and bone uh, via a process that could be easily scaled up, and they think they can grow it quite quickly. And this is why she's the best. This is their rig for growing bones in plates in an incubator, and you'll notice that it is made out of Legos. Like, <laughs> some grad student was like, this is annoying, I'm not gonna do this every day. So they use like the, the Lego mindset but so in her lab, she's been able to, to grow these minerals in the right pattern. And again, the pattern is what's important and what gives it that strength. So even eggshell, right? We think of it as pretty easy to break, but for how thin it is, actually has incredible material properties that are produced over and over again at very little energy. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that we can start to replicate and that Dr. Oyen's lab is doing, hoping that someday we can scale to actually build like full uh, uh, construction equipment or all the lumber that you would need to build a building out of bones. Um, and so, yeah. That is very cool. cool. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, your fact reminds me of another story at the intersection of bones, science, and Halloween. Um, and it concerns the intermaxillary bone, which is in your upper jaw right behind your front teeth, and which is also known as Goethe's bone. Mm. So it's named after Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. That's nice. right. Thank you. <laughs> uh, not because he discovered it, but because he established its existence across mammals. And this was a surprisingly big deal because scientists in Goethe's time thought that the bone existed in primates, but not in humans, which fed this prevailing view that humans shared no common ancestry with primates. And this idea was so pervasive among anatomists that it was essentially dogmatic. Um, that is, until Goethe's friend lent him an elephant skull. So it said maybe had one. Yeah, just like <laughs> friends do. I, you know, back then people had to entertain themselves. Hey, so it's 1784, and Goethe's poking at this elephant skull as people did to pass time before the internet was invented, uh, and this sparks in him an epiphany that the intermaxillary bone is present in human skulls, but was just improperly cataloged the whole time. So he writes a treatise about it um, and sends it to his friend uh, Johann Heinrich Merck of the pharma company Merck, same family. 
uh, to forward it to this famous and well-respected anatomist of the time. But rather than do that, Merck sits on it for months, sends Goethe a snarky letter belittling his discovery, relays none of the anatomist's responses, and steals from the treatise for his own publications. What a dick, yes, exactly. <laughs> so Goethe was rightfully very pissed about this, so much so that there is a small but fervent slice of literary scholarship proposing that Merck's shitty behavior makes an appearance in Goethe's magnum opus, Faust. So here's where it gets Halloween-y. <laughs> so these scholars, most of whom are German, published in the 80s and have names like Helmick, uh, believe <laughs> the character of Mephistopheles in Faust is based upon the devilish Merck and cite solid evidence from Goethe's memoirs to support this. And while we can't ever know for certain whether that was the case, we do know that despite his friend, uh, Goethe's treatise did eventually get published uh, and was read by a certain Charles Darwin some 60 years later while he was formulating his theory of evolution. Very cool. So there you go. Props for Goethe's Darwin. Goethe's bones. Bones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some fact wicked this way comes by way of Noah. So what hellish tale hath you wrought for us this time? This week I learned that whereas the shocking biological and philosophical implications of galvanism inspired Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein, they inspired her husband Percy Shelley to strap local cats onto kites in order to, quote, discover the effects of lightning on a living body. Ooh. Me I now. hope that you now understand my costume, which is, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is a cat that has been struck by lightning. <laughs> I, we don't have time to go into what you guys thought it was before this point, but I would love to hear after the show because it's killing me, I have to know. Feel um, free to write it on your trivia sheets. Yes, that would be <laughs> great, do that. No, I think we all thought Pikachu. Yeah? Ooh, yeah? Yes. Taking the pulse? Oh, One okay. person agrees with me. Thank you. <laughs> um, but before we get into the Shelley family shenanigans, let's first talk a little bit about galvanism. And that's the set of observations about the action of electricity on muscles that we now understand quite well, but in the late 1700s and early 1800s was basically witchcraft and therefore all the rage in European society. <laughs> so galvanism was named after Luigi Galvani, who in the 1780s discovered that touching copper and iron to dissected frogs' legs could make their muscles contract, which led him to be described later as the dancing frog master um, <laughs> by, uh, I think it was a uh, scientist, William Crook, who was the discoverer of the element thallium and also happened to be an avowed spiritualist who held a lot of seances. It's dancing Frogmaster is a compliment in this scenario? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, he certainly <laughs> contributed a friend. lot. He's a dancing frog <laughs> master. <laughs> He's no amateur. Yeah. He's mastered the craft. <laughs> Um, but Galvani attributed this dancing frog movement to what he called animal electricity, and that is electricity that is intrinsically generated by a part of the body. Meanwhile, another scientist, Alessandro Volta, whose name you might know, thought that instead it was an artifact of Galvani's experimental setup. Basically, what Volta showed is that certain combinations of different metals could result in an electric current and proposed that it was his bimetal electricity rather than Galvani's animal electricity that was responsible for the contraction of the muscle. And in order to prove this, Volta invented the first ever battery. And he showed basically that stacks of zinc and copper separated by an electrolyte could produce a current. And I definitely imagine the discovery of bioelectricity and electrophysiology coming after the battery. But in fact, the battery was not just invented later, it was invented directly to contradict the person who discovered electrophysiology. <laughs> and that is <laughs> insane to me that we have like 
things that are powered by batteries that are just some like diss track to Galvani. Um, <laughs> but it's true. But this relatively tame debate among scientists sparked, sorry, um, a scientific <laughs> and cultural obsession with the notion that electricity was an important ingredient for life. And this wasn't a crazy idea, really, if you think about it, because dead animals could be hooked up to electrodes and induced to a movement that, while you know, certainly grotesque, looked a lot more like the movement of living animals than that of an inert corpse. And some people in the medical community felt that it was their duty to explore how this could be used to resuscitate people back to life. And this sort of came at a time in sort of the 1780s, 1790s, where the decades before, in the 1770s and after, there was a growing awareness that people who seemed dead could be revived. And this was most evident in cases where people had drowned in you know, the rivers and lakes of Europe, but particularly in the Thames in London. Um, and and organizations like the Royal Humane Society were established to disseminate information about how to resuscitate people, pay people who attempted resuscitations, and also pay them more if they were successful. Um, Ooh, and incentives. <laughs> <laughs> and, and basically, what was interesting is the Royal Humane Society was the first known as the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned. Um, and someone and, and apparently yeah mm. and the interesting connection to my broader fact is that someone trained by them actually saved Mary Wollstonecraft who was Mary Shelley's mother when she jumped off a bridge into the Thames in order to try to end her life and th they fished her out of the river and were able to resuscitate her so we may never have gotten Mary Shelley and Frankenstein if it wasn't for this organization so, so do you guys know one of the weirder methods that the uh, Royal Humane Society used to use to try and resuscitate drowning victims Poking. Holy water? Just. That would have made more sense. Uh, no, I was looking for tobacco smoke enemas. <laughs> yeah, they are exactly what they sound like. Um, but from what I can tell, their use was actually pretty widespread and strongly supported by the medical community, uh, based on various <laughs> anecdotes claiming their miraculous effects against constipation, cholera, and digestive issues. So if anything, drowning was kind of like the outlier of those indications, but sure. Um, and smoke enemas were so deeply ingrained in the society's rescue protocols that bellows, to deliver the enemas, uh, <laughs> were included in resuscitation kits that were installed along the Thames at regular intervals. Oh my god. Um, crazy, I know, but I swear I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Nice. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's, that was the entire reason for that fact. <laughs> well played, well played. So, in the wake of the debate over galvanism, uh, there would be these incredible public demonstrations uh, by scientists such as Giovanni Aldini, who was actually Galvani's nephew, um, in, in which the head of an ox would be hooked up to electrodes and electricity would be used to like twist its tongue or whatever. Um, and in another demonstration, he sent so much electricity coursing through the diaphragm of an ox that it caused, here we go, quote, um, uh, a very strong action on the rectum. Which, <laughs> which even produced an expulsion of the feces. <laughs> and eventually, these demonstrations led to attempts to actually bring dead people back to life. And, and if you could choose... I, just, I have this picture in my head of him doing that, and then someone on the other end with a bellows pushing <laughs> all right back. <laughs> Quickly! <laughs> They're just going back and forth. I know that didn't happen. Um, but So my question to you all is, if you could choose... One person to bring back to life, who would you choose? It would be uh, maybe a beloved family member, uh, a victim of a tragic accident. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze, yeah. He's great at pottery. But he's great as a ghost, though. That's true. You would rather <laughs> let Patrick Swayze die. The pottery scene. <laughs> well, let me tell you what Gi Giovanni Aldini, uh, who he chose, um, murderers. 
Um, nah, that was far give down a second my list. chance. <laughs> and there was, you know, I hesitate to say there was a good reason for this, but there, they, the thinking was that the ideal candidate for one of these experiments would be freshly dead. Um, and then also there was the problem that it was extremely illegal, except that the an act passed in 1751 called the Murder Act, <laughs> which. You know, contrary to what it, what it sounds like, it's not an act that allows you to murder people, <laughs> but it was actually specifically a law that allowed you to experiment on the bodies of freshly executed murderers. Um, freshly dead, grass-fed, <laughs> organic murderers. <laughs> um, and so Giovanni Aldini hooked up murderer George Forcer some electrodes, and, uh, quote, on the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye was actually open. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. Um, <laughs> Thanks for the visual. That was yeah, you got it. Um, <laughs> But with this kind of thinking, obviously came ethical concerns, both reasonable and reactionary. This is a, an amazing cartoon. Okay, I want to show you. With extraordinarily weird characters. So, <laughs> one of them is a devil named Horny. <laughs> um, and so I want to, it's just, basically it's, no, no, he's consoling the other devil named Horny, and he's saying, no, no, Horny. Can't you see that it's all for our gain, that he should be galvanized into activity again? Basically saying that it's okay that he's been robbed from the grip of hell. He's being brought back into the world and that will cause more pain and suffering than anything we could have ever done. Um, so let's also move on to my other favorite character. This guy, now, if you had to pick an expression on this guy's face, I think, <laughs> I think the first one would be fear, okay? But that's not what he says. His first line is, had I not been born insensible to fear, Sure. And then says a bunch of other weird shit. What, uh, it, it must be a galvanized corpse. But what do I feel? The thing begins to draw me. I feel it. And now it winks at me. Oh, I'm lost. I can't withstand it. I shall hug it. I shall hug it. Oh, yes, I shall hug, hug, hug it. And then, and then the, the stage directions underneath in brackets faints and falls on the neck of the corpse. <laughs> It looks like he just scored a touchdown, too. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Mary Shelley was five years old during Aldini's demonstration uh, and was raised during a time when electricity and especially how electricity could influence movement and even life itself were all the rage among her peers. For example, one of her peers, lovers, uh, and later husband, Percy Shelley, <laughs> had a particularly acute fascination with electricity and particularly how it could affect his pets and family members. His sister Helen said that as a child, Percy would practice electricity upon us <laughs> and that he would get the whole family to sit in a circle around a table holding hands uh, and then he would touch one of them with a wire and a big shock would just go through all of them. And, and Helen's other great quote here is, my heart would sink with fear at his approach. <laughs> so fucked up. Um, and another story, which was told by a visitor to his room at Oxford when he was at school, recalled, um, Shelley then proceeded to show me his electrical apparatus, turning round the handle very rapidly, so the fierce, crackling sparks fell, flew forth, and standing upon the stool, he begged me to work the machine until he was filled with the fluid, so that his long, <laughs> wild locks bristled and stood on end. This, right. this is an important part. Afterwards, he described an electrical kite that he had made, projecting an enormous one that would draw down from the sky an immense volume of electricity, and this being directed to some point would there produce the most stupendous results. And this 
is a really interesting account because, as I mentioned before, he also reportedly tied a cat to a kite and flew it in a thunderstorm just to see what would happen. And <laughs> this, is, this is an incredibly difficult story to track down a source for. It's in several of his biographies, unsourced. So it's possible that it's apocryphal. But given everything else I've read about his quasi-sadistic uh, tendencies, coupled with his profound interest in both electricity and kites, <laughs> I think that it's possible, <laughs> and I'll leave it up to you to decide uh, from this final piece of evidence. Percy Shelley's earliest surviving poem is entitled, A Cat in Distress. <laughs> so this is the kind of person that Mary Shelley found herself hanging out with in the summer of 1816 when she was only 18 years old. Lord Byron had invited Mary, her stepsister Jane, as well as Percy to come to his villa in Geneva. And it was incredibly cold and rainy the entire time and there was nothing to do but sit inside just all day and all night. So you can only do this for so long, obviously, before you become incredibly bored. And what they chose to do was they chose to have a competition to see who could write the best horror story. And the next night, as the story goes, Mary Shelley had this nightmare about the creation of a new person by this mad scientist whose hubris led him to think of himself as a god. And which she later described as having, quote, haunted her midnight pillow. Um, she wrote that perhaps a corpse would be reanimated, galvanism have given token of such things, and she later developed the story into a book, Frankenstein, over the next two years, and by age 20, she published it to rave reviews. And yeah. I think that generally, people kind of know the story of Frankenstein, right? So here I want to highlight just a couple, you know, just an outline of the plot of Frankenstein in, in the ways that it's important to this particular story, and that is, one, scientists believing there are no limits to what can be achieved through science. Two, scientists achieving this thing. Three, oh fuck, this has gotten out of hand. <laughs> we probably should have considered the ethical ramifications of creating new life prior to fucking everything up. <laughs> but also my favorite part of this book, which I did not remember at all from having read it in like high school, was that maybe like the first quarter of the book is just him in grad school. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing, and there's way Not too much... Not quite Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> PhD candidate after he'd passed his quals. Um, but but and I think the biggest message from this is graduate school is wild. Um, and and my, my favorite part, and I'll, just, I'll tell you, and I think it's actually very important because um, he, his whole life as a child, had been really interested in the idea of alchemy, and he had read all these different books about these ancient al alchemists who had, you know, tried to turn this like worthless lead into really valuable gold. And that was what he, he was like. I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to learn alchemy and chemistry, and I'm going to really do it this time. And he he gets to his first chemistry lecture, and he asks some good questions, so they call him up to the front, and he talks to the professor after he's so proud, and the professor asks him what he's interested in studying, and he tells them alchemy, and the professor replies thusly, have you really spent your time in studying such nonsense? Every minute that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. <laughs> good God, in what desert land have you lived where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? And, and I said, this, well, is an, this is actually an incredibly, <laughs> this is an incredibly important turning point in the book because this is the moment where Dr. Frankenstein, soon to be, decides he's gonna stop <laughs> trying to turn worthless metals into valuable gold and start turning worthless corpses into valuable humans. <laughs> that is the turning point, because he's so embarrassed by this. But whether you like the book or not, it is impossible to deny the remarkable impact it had and continues to have, defining, if not outright inventing, the genre of science fiction. Um, 
and carving out a foothold, frankly, in fraught bioethical terrain that continues to haunt us to this day. Uh, and if nothing else, she certainly compares well to her contemporaries, such as her husband, Percy, who was just as fascinated by electricity and its potential, um, <laughs> and instead chose to torture his family as well as the occasional feline. Ugh. Wow. Can, You're never can one to resist making a pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Your conduct is unbecoming. <laughs> Noah, do you know where he got all of those materials? Where? Uh, it was the Ohm Depot. <laughs> 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 So, please find someone or something to cling to for our next petrifying, putrefying fact brought to you by special guest Diana Montano. Yes, Diana, spirit us away with your frightful fact. Thanks, Emily. Amazing. Well, uh, this week I learned that the sounds of screams when heard by humans completely bypass our auditory cortex, or the sound idea part of the brain, and head straight for our amygdala, which is the fear's processing center. All right, so that might not sound very scary yet, but before we get into the why this is so important, let's talk about how we even know what is and isn't a scream. Uh, so scientists have done a few different studies to figure out what exactly a scream is and what clues people uh, use to actually identify them. So a few scientists, uh, two of which named Jonathan Engelbert and Harold Gazulez, who published their work, The Credibility of Acted Screams, Implications for Emotional Communication Research. Uh, so that was published in Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology in 2018. I know it's not PNAS, but uh, it is. You said it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> it's a QJEP. So that's also fun to say, I guess. <laughs> Why not? Thanks. Uh, but anyway, they set out to find, one, if people could identify what was and wasn't a scream of fear, and two, if they could tell which screams were acted and which were natural. It is very scary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out um, we're pretty good at telling what sounds are screams and which ones aren't. Generally, people could tell fear-provoked screams from other screams of delight or of general surprise, and sounds that weren't screams at all. They weren't great at telling which screams were acted and which were natural, but hey, that just means we're really good at producing screaming like we mean it. Uh, so how do we do it? How do we tell what is a scared scream? Screams have this quality called roughness, a quality described in another study published in 2015 by Luke Arnall and his colleagues. Normally, screams modulate between five and uh, four and five hertz in sound variation. So uh, for those of you who are like me, explain hertz like I am five. That's exactly what I did when I was researching this piece. So I got you, don't worry. Uh, hertz is the number of variations per second on a sound wave. More vibrations, the more hertz, the more pitch we perceive. So. Uh, the pitch of your voice goes up and down a little and a little bit more if you're on stage and trying to act expressive for an audience. But screams are different. Uh, <laughs> screams spike between 30 and 150 hertz. So that's 120 hertz different, way more than the four to five modulation in normal speech patterns. Uh, it ends up sounding more like a buzzing or a gravelly sound, not the normal dulcet tones of our beautiful voices here <laughs> up on stage. Uh, and the higher the sound variation, the more terrifying a scream sounds. 
but there are a lot of other sounds that have roughness to them. For example, I'll listen to a fire alarm up close. I don't actually suggest you get physically close to it. Um, but you'll notice that it's not just one high tone or a loud noise. It's a very quick modulation of frequencies in there that catches your attention very quickly. Uh, that's because this roughness, the same quality that screams of all kinds share, is an evolutionary context that far precedes other vocalizations. So before we could articulate with words that our brothers ceremoniously ripped off the heads of our Barbie dolls, <laughs> both earlier in our evolution and earlier in each of us were, when each of us were babies, screaming could get our uh, feelings about the matter across much more efficiently. Uh, but also, all kinds of animals scream. Also when their Barbie dolls' heads are ripped off by their brothers. I definitely don't hold a grudge about it. <laughs> Usually, though, their screams are restricted to fights or as part of confrontations uh, with another, again, Barbie decapitating enemy. Uh, humans scream, they, they vary a lot more in terms of acoustics as well as contacts in which we scream. For instance, I scream every time I see a cute dog walking with his humans around <laughs> the city. Every time. I am an awful person to walk around the city with. <laughs> Uh, the fact that we were screaming way before we were talking to one another about our weekends helps us understand why screams skip over the auditory cortex or the sound ID center of the brain, which makes judgments about sounds, like the screamer's gender or age or tone, and heads straight for the amygdala, uh, the brain's fear processing center. If someone is screaming, there's a pretty good chance that you need to know why as soon as possible. How can your brain help you with that? By telling your brain, it doesn't matter who is screaming, you need to pay attention, be on alert, because you just need to know why right now by sending that straight to the fear center. It's like the who ghosts there <laughs> of the brain. Is this, is this something that, because I have friends with kids, and I feel like that that's a really important response to hear your child screaming and then attend to it. Yeah, totally. But by the time the kid gets to like five, the parents just kind of don't care anymore. They're like, nah, you're not. <laughs> it's like, I don't, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm yeah. not getting up. Also, uh, parents become really attuned very quickly to the kinds of screams. So like people can very quickly say, oh, that's a, that's a hunger scream and that's a fear scream. That's a, that, that baby's tired. Like you'll hear moms say that pretty quickly after they have children because one, they learn by being around their children. But also I think that there's some kind of science there too about like, the more you're actually attuned to a kind of thing, the more you actually learn what's happening. So, I uh. think there's some kind of science there is definitely going to be the title of my thesis. There's some <laughs> kind of science there. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the subtitle is just, who knows? <laughs> I didn't check. Uh, okay, so, well, this brings me to my favorite part of any night that I design. Uh, I know you've all been poking your table mates or carpool partners, if you're listening to this, in the ribs with your elbows throughout this whole story saying, psh, I bet I can tell the difference between a fear scream and any other kind of scream. Well, it is time to put your <laughs> skill to the test with a game I'm calling I Scream, You Scream, We All Scream <laughs> for lots of various reasons because humans are complex. <laughs> Thank you. My colleagues will tell you I'm not good at naming things, but I am true to form. So uh, I'm going to play a scream for you, and you all will have to vote about whether it is a fear scream or an any other kind of scream. So it's sort of like a general 
free for all at that point. Uh, after each question, we'll do a quick round of applause to see which side our audience is on. Uh, so, Emily, if you would do the honors, uh, let's try Absolutely. Scream number one. I will say, um, we played a similar game on our uh, radio show, Science Friday, a few... Oh, wait. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> All right, so that's scream number one. That was scream number one. All right, I know I sort of interrupted a little bit, but what did you guys think? Is it a fear scream? Clap your hands if you think that was a fear scream. All right, we got some. What about a, a not so much a fear scream? Yeah. Okay. All right, you've got a smart audience. Uh, yeah, that was it. Was a fear of delight. It was a, fear a of delight. yeah, a scream of delight. It turned from fear into delight. It was a scream of delight. Um, it was it, that's the that's the sound of a person opening a gift and being wonderfully surprised by what was inside. So, a good scream. Yeah. A scream of delight. All right, so we have a second scream. All right, brace yourselves. All right, same to your choice. Was. All right, you got two chances. What do you think? All right, well, let's go with clap if you think it was a fear scream. All right, what about a not so fear scream? The brave. Not convinced. Thanks for clapping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was a fear scream. It was a it was a person being Ooh. frightened. So right. good job. See, we're really good at this. Ooh, all right, got two go. more. All right, let's try our third one. What do you think? What, do you think it was a, a fear scream? Clap if you think it was a fear scream. All right. What about a not so fear scream? Not a scream at all. It was a whistle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm uh. mean. <laughs> um, it's funny, actually, because the participants of this study, um, they were basically given a binary choice. Was it a fear, uh, scream of fear, or was it a scream of delight or some other kind of emotion? Um, and because they're part of a study, they were kind of like, all right, well, I got to pick one of these. And they didn't choose anything else. And so very few people were like, that wasn't a scream at all. So they just picked the other, they picked one or the two. Turns out it's a whistle. So I like to think that because we are in New York City, uh, we, we hear people whistling for cabs a lot more, <laughs> even though we have, Uber. you know, <laughs> Lyft and Uber now. Um, <laughs> but I like to think we're better at it than those people. So good job. You guys got that. There we go. All right. So we've got one more. <laughs> All right, I'm not even gonna. Just so, somebody just said that was Noah. <laughs> or they were condemning you, thinking that they, you actually helped me put that in there. So, yeah, um, yeah okay. So I'm not even gonna play the game with you guys. That was the Wilhelm scream. Um, <laughs> thank you. Pretty good. Thank you. Or the Noah scream. Yeah, yeah. depending who you ask. Uh, Which we I don't think know could be one or the other, depending on the context of the movie. It's very true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we don't really know where the Wilhelm scream came from. It was originally found in a movie from, I think, the 30s, and it just kind of like ended up being taken, like, ooh, that's a good one. We'll put it in this movie. And then they kept doing it over and over, and it's, it's sort of gained in infamy since then. Uh, so they, they're pretty sure it was an acted scream as part of like a movie, but nobody really knows. So, But it has a fun name. <laughs> All right. Can I ask ooh. an ethics question? 
Yes. Generally, like, <laughs> if you're going to do a study on real and fake screams, how do you generate a real scream of fear? I think they like, actually <laughs> just, right? I think they just found them on the internet, which I think mm. s- could be slightly uh, dependent on what you're finding. Okay. Um, but I think that they found videos and sound clips from the internet. Or okay. just like YouTube videos where something pops up at the end. Yeah. I'd prefer yeah. to think that they paid undergraduates to sit in a room and they then just they just like, like ah! <laughs> <laughs> Or they handed them something they really, really wanted. <laughs> like, like, a, like a vape pen. <laughs> <laughs> so, Diana, if I can get this working again. Yay! All right. The irony of us having audio problems as a podcast is not lost on me. Anyways, <laughs> so your fact reminded me uh, actually of Edvard Munch's famous painting. The Scream, for I think obvious reasons, Uh, and something very cool about it. So in 2014, a paper in the journal Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics, not PNAS, but (laughs) I love PNAS. Uh, Hey, (laughs) found that painting. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) That is going to be taken delightfully out of context. Found that paintings that depict sunsets, uh, like the brilliantly vibrant, fiery one that you see in The Scream, can indicate that uh, at a time at the time they were painted, there were aerosols like dust and ash in the atmosphere, which were put there by a volcanic eruption. So by analyzing the red to green ratios in over 100 paintings from the years 1500 to 2000, uh, the researchers found the paintings created in volcanic years, so the year of the eruption and then including three years after it, uh, contained the most red in their sunsets. And interestingly, the scream may be no exception to this. Munch was around during the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883, which produced the loudest sound ever heard on planet Earth, uh, and also a lot of spectacular sunsets all over the world for months afterwards. And it's been proposed that Munch's view of these sunsets from his native Norway inspired the background of the screen. And those rainy, crappy indoor conditions in which Frankenstein was written were the the consequence of a volcanic winter caused by Mount Tambora. So everything's connected. Spooky. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've made it against some odds uh, to our last segment of the show, the quiz. So prepare yourselves for a series of ghastly, grueling questions loosely inspired by the theme and straight from the twisted mind of yours, Booley. Uh, you guys ready? All right. Ooh, it'd be great if I weren't holding right. up the answers to you. Okay. Uh, question one. What arthropod inhabits every continent but Antarctica, adorns the brooch of Lady Hale, and has been observed to engage in sexual cannibalism? Well, I know who Lady Hale is. And Very good. <laughs> oh, well. Cool. Lady Hale <laughs> is the president. The Lady Hale is the president of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. Yeah, she is. And she quite famously wore a spider spider yeah. brooch. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, sp- spiders? spiders. 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 I like it. You are correct. Woo. Yes. <laughs> So that is indeed Lady Brenda Hale, first female president of the British Supreme Court, wearing an iconic Diamante spider brooch while announcing the court's decision that Boris Johnson illegally suspended Parliament back in September, which just such a mood, right? <laughs> so this spider question... Spider brooch, spider brooch. <laughs> just 
keep that on the tip of your tongue because you're going to want to say that for a lot of things. So this question introduces the theme of the quiz, as our audience already knows, though if anyone missed that, I'm afraid you didn't do very well. But it gives me an excuse to bring up spider sexual cannibalism, which sure is freaky as a concept, but even more so because it's been inaccurately described in arachnology textbooks for decades. And what's scarier than misinformation? Come on. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. So the behavior of female spiders cannibalizing their male mates after copulation is historically most associated with spiders of the genus Latrodectus, which includes black widows. So if you put that, you got full points. Hey. Ooh, that's where this idea comes from. Uh, but some recent studies suggest that this interpretation of their sexual appetites, if you will, is not entirely accurate. So per the Burke Museum's Spider Myths blog, the observations that gave rise to this idea were based on only a few Lactrodectus species, and not all species behave alike, uh, and were recorded while the spiders were in captivity. And so, in this respect and others, uh, do not necessarily reflect their natural behavior. But in those rare situations where males are cannibalized, it's actually part of a process that they voluntarily submit themselves to. Uh, not because they're gluttons for punishment, though maybe some of them are, I'm not here to kink shame, but <laughs> by getting devoured, they increase the chances of successfully inseminating their mate. And since spider matings occur so infrequently, it's unlikely that a male spider will mate more than once in its lifetime. So the sacrifice of one confers a survival benefit to the species overall. Mm. So it's really not cannibalism, but more like a compromise to the relationship. So it's pretty romantic <laughs> if you don't think about it too hard or at all. Yeah. So wait, if, if I'm to understand this, yes. uh, a bunch of male scientists were wrong about something that women do. Yeah. So, part of the course. No one ever. <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> Such a shocker. All right. Question two. That's where we are. Uh, in 1954, British pharmacologist Peter Witt published a study wherein he gave drugs to spiders and recorded the effects on their web weaving. This was the first of many such experiments carried out by him and others in the now time-honored tradition of getting spiders high for science. <laughs> so these images were taken from his results. If you had to guess, which you do, this is a quiz, what were these spiders tripping on when they made these webs? So it's a little cut off, but your options are benzedrine, marijuana, peyote, chloral hydrate, caffeine, and life. So no drugs. <laughs> um, okay, I think life is actually probably like two or six. I think li I think life is messy is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so poetic. Um, and I have, I have this weird feeling that caffeine would actually make you do number one. <laughs> I don't know. Caffeine makes me feel like that one, where it's like I start out good, and then I just kind of fall off the rails really fast. And then I try a little bit more, and then it just falls apart again. And this oh, one's yeah. definitely pot. <laughs> <laughs> Although, th What's the point, man? <laughs> There is a perfect hexagon right in the middle there, and yeah, that's kind of impressive. Start really well, and then it just, <laughs> just falls apart, and goes somewhere else. And I forget, what's chloral hydrate? Uh, oh. It's a sedative, oh. like oh. a heavy so sedative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm with you guys. <laughs> so I think I'll show the answers, well, but the fact that we're... Oh, is that one chloral ahead. hydrate, the one where like nothing's done? Yes. Yes. Really? So, yes. So the fact that you're all humanizing spiders is the point of this whole endeavor, so I'm very happy. <laughs> but the answers are here. So the first oh. one is life. That is our control. Sober spider. The second one is marijuana. 
Uh, of the weed web, Wit noted, marijuana produces no disturbance of the sense of direction, but the animal leaves the outer part of the web uncovered by cross members. So in other words, he gets a little lazy. Oh. Uh, chloral hydrate, as I mentioned, is a pretty potent sedative, uh, sometimes given as a sleeping aid or to patients before surgery, and I think that web speaks for itself. Uh, benzedrine or bennies contain amphetamines. Uh, when these were given, the spiders would spin spirals, uh, but as Wit said, they zigzagged like an unsteady walker, which... Okay. Um, caffeine, so that one scared me a lot when I yeah. found out that was caffeine. But fear not, uh, it actually turns out that caffeine is toxic to spiders, among other critters, and acts as a natural insecticide. So really, that's just more reason to love it. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, so the spiders were given mescaline, which is the active ingredient in peyote. And this one's tricky because it was at a pretty low dose, and at higher doses, more expectedly, the spiders built no webs at all. They probably just kind of like mm. lied back with all of their eyes very wide. Open. They just saw webs. <laughs> <laughs> Psychedelic webs. Um, I will say, not shown here is the one drug that improved the structure and regularity of their webs. Any guesses oh. as to what that was? Uh, oh, LSD. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> nice. All right. <laughs> Very good. All right. Question three. So the goddess Arachne, whose hubris in a contest against Athena resulted in her arachnid transformation, was a talented practitioner of what craft? Oh, she was, um, she had the loom. She was a seamstress. Yes. Nice. Okay. She was a weaver. So yes, anything, <laughs> anything like sewing related got points because that's the vein of it. So can, that's can why I, she was a spider. Can yeah. I sing this? Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Can, can you, Rob? Can you? Yeah. In fifth grade, we had a Latin teacher who was this little old Italian lady and she taught us the arachne myth. And it was set to the Itsy Bitsy Spider. Am I spoiling anything? No, please. I didn't think Carry so. Carry on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to forget right in the middle, but it's something like, Arachne and Athena were experts at the loom. Fear and... Re no. Pride and reverence sealed Arachne's doom. <laughs> um, Keep going. Uh, Athena got mad and sent her on away. And Arachne is a spider weaving night and day. What? <laughs> it's in there. Fantastic. You know, I was I was going to explain the myth, but I don't think I can top that. Yeah. So that's perfect. Um, <laughs> that just welled up inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you were waiting for your moment, and there it was. But I am going to jump off of this weaving fact to talk a little bit about spider silk. So spider webs are woven from spider silk, which has astonishing mechanical properties, like being five times stronger than a piece of steel of the same thickness, being so light that en enough to circle the planet weighs just over a pound, and stretching to five times its relaxed length without snapping. It's wild. Um, and that makes it an appealing material for all sorts of applications, but Unfortunately, collecting silk from spiders is a pretty costly and impractical venture. Uh, one reason for this being, as I mentioned earlier, they eat each other in captivity. Not great. Uh, but a few years ago, some scientists at Utah State had the idea to create a transgenic mammal that could produce silk proteins in its milk as a means of making silk more feasible to harvest on a large scale. Any guesses, and like audience feel free to shout out on this guy too, as to what mammal they chose. Go. Yeah, yeah, loyal listeners in the back. Woo! Woo! Hey. <laughs> Rob, yes. they might just know that. Did, okay, <laughs> listener in the back, did you or did you not listen to episode six of Fax Machine to learn this fact? No, I'm a scientist, bro. Damn. <laughs> but, but I can't. But we can't be disappointed. What are you, enough, a though. goat scientist? <laughs> 
Or a spider scientist. If his letter comes out to me after the show. Uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious that I love spiders, so calm down. <laughs> um, but yes, it's goats, which is awesome. And also, I would say this is a pretty solid Halloween costume idea, in case anyone still needs one. Just to say. I, All right. I think it's also worth mentioning that, I mean, we haven't mentioned, I don't know if it's anybody's thought of this, but where the spider silk comes out of the goat. It's, I, I, it's, it's but... It's <laughs> <laughs> no, isn't it? It's, it's, it comes out it's through its milk, udders, yeah. yeah. yeah so they, the they isolate it from the milk. It's not yeah. just coming out of its butt. Well, no, it's, it's yeah, Fine. it's spider silk and it's milk. So they milk it out and then filter out the proteins and can actually reconstruct the silk from That's that. That's so weird. Can you just imagine I a like web, that less. Like a web right? this big with a goat sitting in the middle of it? <laughs> That's what I'm... <laughs> Question four. <laughs> Uh, which of the following celebrities, and I'll put the list on the screen as well, uh, does not have a species of spider named after them? So we have David Bowie, Barack Obama, Andrew Garfield, Marilyn Monroe, and David Attenborough. Okay. Which they don't. Do not. They name bugs after anything that you can imagine. So you could, like David Bowie probably has like a really glittery spider somewhere. Yeah. And I could see it. Andrew Garfield was a Spider-Man. That, that makes, makes sense. sense. But it also is the kind of thing she would put in there precisely to make us say that. Uh. Yeah. Uh, and also, if you're going to name a spider after a Spider-Man, would you name it after Andrew Garfield? <laughs> <laughs> like, of all the Spider-Men. No, you name it after Shane. Tobey Maguire. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. I, I bet David Attenborough has one. I he bet must. Barack Obama has one. Marilyn Monroe, you can imagine there's some, there's some characteristic. I'm going to say that David Attenborough doesn't, that he has Ooh. a lot of other things named after him, including so birds, many. including carnivorous fish. plants. Don't be greedy, it's sick. David. This is a very deep dive I yeah. had the other day. <laughs> but he does have a lot. He has like 12 or 15 species named after him because everyone loves him. But I'm going to say not a spider. I'm going to say it's David Attenborough. We'll go with that. A yeah. Attenborough. Yeah. The answer was actually Marilyn Monroe, no. which I checked a bunch of times because I was surprised. But to go through each in turn, we have heteropoda David Bowie, endemic not to Mars, but to Malaysia. It is shiny. Well, yeah. It is shiny. It's kind of iridescent, right? Yeah. Um, Aptosticus Barack Obama, who even as a spider would still be a better president. Uh, Pritha... <laughs> Just the easiest applause. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Pritha Garfieldy, which I will say Tobey Maguire also has a spider named after him. Well, for parody. Thank I, God. I would, <laughs> I would really like to start the rumor that Andrew Garfield eats beetles. <laughs> Let's get that going tonight. All right. Go forth from here. Spread the word. I think that's the show's hashtag, so you guys do what you do. Uh, and Prethopalpus attenboroughi, uh, which is also known as Attenborough's goblin spider. So very Halloween-y. That's just and a crab. I will say appropriately. the other one. That's just David no. Attenborough. Though I'll say appropriately, in that picture, he is holding a spider, spider crab, crab yeah. who loves him just as much as we do. He's <laughs> <laughs> doing a little heart with his claws. Oh it's great. <laughs> All right. I think this is a good time to mention that um, the beer I'm drinking tonight is called David Attenborough. Yes, and it's yes. excellent. And so get that at the bar if you some. can. It's really very good. It is refreshing and clean. That, <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> Question five. <laughs> uh, Bagheera Kiplingi are the only known spider to keep what kind of diet mostly? So your options are vegetarian, omnivorous, vertebrate-centric, or Whole30. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go vertebrates, right? Go big or go home. 
Yeah. Said someone. The only species, the only known spider. Yeah, it just grabs. I'm imagining it grabbing big vertebrates too. So that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> you will love my slides. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. I think it eats birds or something. So Ooh. the answer is actually Whole30. No, it's a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this little guy is a vegetarian. Oh. Yeah. So these right. guys are predominantly herbivores, which cannot be said of any of the other 40,000-plus known species of spiders. Wow. So he's very unique. Uh, and spiders are generally considered to be omnivorous with a strong carnivorous streak, um, though some will occasionally nibble on like nectar, sap, seeds, vege vegetation like that. Um, but Bagheera Kiplinghi's diet mostly consists of leaf buds called Beltium bodies that grow on acacia trees. Uh, to address one of the other options though, there are ooh, uh, quite a few vertebrate eating spiders and they're the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> and since this is a Halloween show, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. That one with that's the bat is fish. too big. And that's a bat. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> so there are a few genera of spiders that eat birds, bats, fish, small amphibians, all sorts of shit. Uh, one being Dolomites, like the guy in the middle. Uh, and as with spiders generally, these voracious vertebrate vores are also present on every continent but Antarctica, making Antarctica sound pretty good right about now. <laughs> wow. All right, question six. The song Boris the Spider was famously written in only six minutes by the basis of what band? And bonus point for the basis name. Oh, fuck. Well, <laughs> whatever. Well, I know the band because this is related to Lady Hale. Uh, and the ah. whole thing about Lady Hale and her like spider brooch was about it being like a secret rebuke to Boris uh, Johnson. And so Boris the Spider was written by The Who. Yes. Oh. That's the band. I don't know the basis name. Uh, Daltrey Townsend, and I'm out. <laughs> you got two out of four or five, but yeah. uh, but yes, it was the Who. Uh, the bassist name is John Entwistle, um, and he became so <gasps> associated with the song that he took to wearing spider brooches and pendants during performances, and had an alembic bass custom made with silvery spiderweb inlay, which is what's oh, up here. Oh, very cool. So legend has it that Entwistle wrote this Halloween classic in six minutes, which I find believable, considering that exactly half the song's lyrics are combinations of the words creepy and crawly. <laughs> Just that, exactly half. Really showing some lyrical range. <laughs> All right, question seven. Do so you find that on the World Wide Web? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having too much fun with this girl now. All right, question seven. So which the following feats can't spiders do? So they can do all these things except for one. So A, use their webs to actively capture prey, like as slingshots or lassos. Uh, B, detect electric fields. Or C, uh, sorry, there's five of them. C, <laughs> thrive in nuclear disaster exclusion zones. D, sing. Or E, spin webs in space. I, oh. I know they can detect electric fields because they use them to fly. Yeah, I sick. know <laughs> that there are some spiders that just go like that and like shoot out their webs, I think. I, I said I know. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly dialing it back. But, uh, the last one I think I've heard of is I remember they sent spider webs, I'm sorry, they sent spiders into space and they were very confused. <laughs> and yeah. I, that's, that's all I know. Yeah, that's I think Technically they sing because there are those spiders that sort of like clap. 
clap, 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 clap. And while they're doing that, <laughs> this, yeah. that's clapping, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't know that, obviously. No, no, no. <laughs> it's very confusing. <laughs> this is a bad show. <laughs> but, other, but they also, I think, like, make tiny vocalizations when they're doing that. So I don't know about the nuclear disaster zones, though, but... I mean, they, we're bad at space, so probably they're bad at space. I bet there's yeah. like loads of spiders in Chernobyl. Yeah, or something. Like they I waited for us to leave, and then they <laughs> took over. What if they <laughs> caused it? Oh, interesting. <laughs> it was a giant oh stratagem of spiders to get us out of that part of Ukraine. And then they made that whole Netflix series just to get us off their case. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the perfect plan. <laughs> Playing a really spiders. long game there. <laughs> um. Ellie, tell us which one is right. Sorry, Marvel fans. But surveys of Chernobyl and Fukushima have shown that spider populations, as well as those of insects, decline with higher levels of radiation. Interestingly, some larger oh. mammal species have actually surpassed their pre-disaster population levels in exclusion zones because there are no humans. Yeah, in some ways, we're worse on nature than nuclear fallout. Ain't that great. Um, on the plus side, if this quiz makes you want to flee somewhere totally devoid of spiders, your options are now Antarctica and the exclusion zone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are on to question eight, which is the last question for those keeping track at home. Time for redemption. <laughs> so tarantism, a malady thought to be caused by the bite of a wolf spider, is traditionally remedied through frenzied performance of what activity? This is in a human. In a human, yes. Okay. So what do they have to do to cure themselves of tarantism? So if I have tarantism, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I dance. You are correct. Yay! That feels great. <laughs> nice. Yes, tarantism was one of the many dancing manias that were all the rage in 14th to 17th century Europe. Uh, this one mostly afflicted the Toronto province of southern Italy. And per Italian folklore, bites of the wolf spider, like Cosa Tarantula, would become so agitated and hysterical that the only way to cure their condition and prevent their death was through performing a frantically high-energy dance called the Tarantella, which, given that, I would argue is the original safety dance. And <laughs> This is just an excuse for the people in the Footloose town. <laughs> if they needed some reason that they could be dancing. Yeah, they missed the, the, the prologue where the town is overcome by wolf spiders. <laughs> um, and, and while the Tarantella is more broadly associated with classical music, actually, uh, as it was adapted by composers like Chopin, Liszt, and Debussy, thanks to stuff like The Sopranos and The Godfather, I'll bet everyone in this room will recognize this one. So let me try this. Called Tarantella Napolitana. No. <laughs> there we go, this one. Yeah, this is a Tarantella. All right, sit down. All right. <laughs> all right, we got there. But yeah, super recognizable, all thanks to wolf spiders, right? Awesome. People listening to the podcast who have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so that has been our quiz. Okay. All right. And now you might think that this is the end of the show, but you would be wrong. Uh, we do have one more little surprise for you guys as a thank you for coming out to see us live. 
basically cool. we did a little something extra at our last show as well and we hope to reprise that but also up the ante because that's just who we are as humans uh, as you're now noticing, there are some very colorfully attired musicians picking up instruments in their debut performance, The Trunk Pumpkins. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're going to help us sing a little song to close out the night. Woo. So I think that's it. All right. Shall we? Kicking in at Caveat late one night With my co-ghosts and Diana to our delight We told spooky stories, we had a few laughs Until we unleashed our monster facts We shed our monster facts Our monster facts They were a Caveat smash Our monster facts We're spooky to the max at the windowsill saw sad dead eyes and to my horror I realized it was a mirror we shared our facts we shared our monster facts they were a caveat smash we shared our facts we were spooky to the max we shared our monster facts I was working in the lab had to grow some That is uh, uh, a typical of lab. My luck was pretty shitty. We had monster facts. Uh, monster facts. They were caveats facts. We our facts. We were spooky to the max. Monster facts. We shared our monster facts. Oh, late one night, I heard a terrible yell. Was it a beast or 